Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Today, the people of Israel are under attack, orchestrated by a terrorist organization, Hamas. In this moment of tragedy, I want to say to them and to the world and to terrorists everywhere that the United States stands with Israel. Uh, President Joe Biden on the attack um, of Israel by the terror group Hamas. I was looking at a post on X by former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Last night, as Canadians began to celebrate our Thanksgiving weekend, Israelis were attacked by the terror group Hamas. Today, as Canada wakes up to unspeakable images of terror, pain, and war, we must remain shoulder to shoulder with Israel as it responds to and defends itself from these criminal and cowardly acts of terror. To friends in Israel and around the world, I hope you know that today and always, through fire and water, Canada will stand with you. That's our former Prime Minister, Stephen Harper. On X, yeah, formerly known as Twitter. Joining us uh, on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network is the ambassador to Canada from Israel, Ambassador Ido Moed. Mr. Ambassador, thank you very much uh, for taking the time. A very difficult for day for you and your country. Um, could you explain to us, please, what the situation on the ground in Israel is right now? Thank you, Roy, and uh, hello to all the listeners. Yes, um, we are facing a horrendous terrorist attack that has really no precedent, I think, in our region or in the history of a terrorist organization, state-sponsored terrorist organization that orchestrates such a broad, vicious massacre of uh, civilians, of kidnapping and taking uh, civilians, innocent people, uh, hostages, on, on let's, let's put it in, in Canadian terms, on their Thanksgiving holiday. I mean, we celebrate uh, Simchat Torah, one of the most important holidays of the year. We finished reading the Torah scroll, and uh, we celebrate that. That was supposed to happen tonight. And, the, and instead of that, people are running to the shelters and hiding in the homes and locking the doors and peering out the windows to see terrorists shooting people on the street. Just imagine if that happens on Thanksgiving anywhere here in Canada. And I think that horrific scene is still um, unfolding in Israel, although uh, we've been able to uh, uh, stop uh, most of the attacks. But it is still ongoing. And uh, this, this means that such a widespread terrorist attack cannot take place without the sponsoring and the support and the arms that are provided by a state player, and that would be uh, most probably Iran. We know that Iran supports Hamas very much. So um, it's a very sad day today in Israel, but we are fighting and uh, we'll continue to fight, although we are striving for peace. We will continue to fight to protect our civilians and take all necessary measures to keep them safe and to keep our territory safe. Ambassador Moyed, one of my guests earlier described today as Israel's 9-11. Well, that's, uh, I mean, that history will judge that, but it's a very significant day, for sure. I mean, a lot is changing. Uh, the fact that such a massive attack, attack took place, um, is, is really, uh, in many ways, can be considered as a sort of a, a turning point. 
we have to be very careful, though, because we want to address the terrorists and make sure that the terrorists don't have the upper hand. Um, while this uh, period of lull that was uh, the period before this uh, uh, attack uh, was happening, we uh, understand we understood that some of the terrorist organizations felt that it's also a time to attack Israel. We knew that that, that they had such plans. Uh, but on our side, we provided the Palestinian population in the Gaza Strip with um, more um, uh, licenses to work in Israel and to earn a living, to ship more goods through the passages through our port, uh, to provide, of course, the energy and the water resources that were necessary for the population. All of that continued and even broadened. We in introduced a new project energy project, that, which is supposed to create an energy corridor from the Gaza Strip to Jordan. And so all of that improvement was uh, also, I think, taking away the support of the broad population from Hamas, because Hamas really wants to continue the terrorist line there against Israel, they want to destroy Israel. And that's what they're trying to do now. And uh, of course, we'll fight against that and we'll stop that and Israel will prevail. And I see that also peace will prevail, but it will take us time. Ambassador, um, have you had the opportunity to speak with Prime Minister Trudeau or Canada's Global Affairs Minister or other officials of the Canadian government? Um, well, I, I, had to, I had to correct you actually at the beginning because when you introduced me, you said ambassador and I'm ambassador designate. I'm supposed to present my credentials this coming Friday to the Governor General, and only after that will I be able to uh, directly be in contact with elected officials. So that's basically a technicality at the moment. Okay. Can you tell us whether Canadian federal officials like the Prime Minister or the Global Affairs Minister have been in touch with the Embassy? Yes, absolutely. And they also uh, demonstrated the full support, also published very strong statements in support of Israel and solidarity with the Israeli people. And that's very much appreciated. The same also applies to a very broad spectrum of political leaders, of uh, leaders from the business community, uh, people just friends from all around, from uh, all, all, all walks of life. Uh, and it's really heartwarming to see how many people uh, extend the, their heart and, and hug us at this, uh, at this difficult time. So we are very encouraged by that. Uh, Mr. Moyd, I've heard from Canadians who have family in Israel, family who live in Israel, family who are Israeli citizens, and they're deeply concerned for these citizens, members of their families, particularly on this Thanksgiving weekend in this country. What would you? What's your message for Canadians with family and or friends in Israel now? Um, to heed by the instructions of the security forces, so stay indoors. Uh, of course, uh, listen to the, to the news and to the uh, general instructions. Uh, we, you know, it's not the first time that we've had to deal with such extensive uh, attacks, although this time it seems that uh, it's, it's, it's much further. But people in Israel, we, we, we endure this and we, uh, we will continue to, when we will resume our lives very soon, I assume, and uh, so hang in there. Uh, it's a difficult time. It's very stressful. But uh, we are ready and we know what we are doing. And all the, all the systems and all the emergency um, organizations are functioning terrific. So um, we just have to wait this out.
An Iranian journalist and activist who was on the air just prior to you, Masi Alinejad, and she's not looked on favorably by the Tehran regime. They've tried to kill her on a number of occasions. She had no doubt that Iran was behind this and Iran was providing the financing. And you mentioned that, um, that Iran was likely engaged with Hamas and would be providing resources to Hamas. Do you have any concern that maybe the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, might physically be on the ground or physically engaged with Hamas? Uh, they usually have a tendency of to do to do such operations by proxy because uh, that's they, how they operate. We see that also elsewhere in the Middle East. So the issue really is, and we know that uh, Iran was in, uh, in directly in contact with the terrorist organizations in our region uh, in recent months because they perceived the situation inside Israel as a sign of weakness and they uh, that was no secret, so they thought that that would be an opportune time to attack. Uh, the point really is that, I mean, we, the international community should look at Iran, Syria, Lebanon, uh, this axis of evil as the source of uh, trouble for the region and warn them that they should uh, stay away from this conflict, stay away from the region, and not instigate terrorism and not push for uh, this kind of horrendous massacres, because that's really the, the, the big uh, issue with Iran. I know that Iran somehow, uh, at least recent media reports claim that Iran was trying to signal to Saudi Arabia as well that their approximate with Israel basically also can uh, endanger the stability of the government there. Um, Iran has no... Uh, limitations and uh, does not hesitate to, to intervene and to meddle anywhere. We know that in Lebanon, we know what they're doing in Syria, and they are a very dangerous player. This is where the international community should really take a role, a leading role, in warning Iran and its allies from uh, further escalating the situation. Yeah, the concern, one of the concerns is, I'm sure, Hezbollah in uh, northern uh, Lebanon looking on with favor to what Hamas is doing. And uh, do you have concerns that uh, organizations like Hezbollah might become engaged? And here we are, 50 years to the day of the outbreak of the 1973 Middle East War. And uh, one of the questions is being asked is, might this in fact lead, and you just touched on this, but might it lead to a regional escalation and conflict? Um, I think that what we, we are looking at is a turning point. I mentioned that. I, mm -hmm. We don't know exactly where this is going, but we understand, and I hope that the international community also understands, that such players, such rogue players, that Iran really uh, bring danger to the whole region and destabilize the whole region uh, very seriously. And so um, negotiating with such uh, leader, leadership, such terrorist leadership, is not the solution. They really have to understand that they cannot con continue with, their, with their, their endeavors, and they should be stopped. Um, so, yes, we keep our eyes open towards the north, as we always have been. Uh, Lebanon is another, uh, what we call another story. Um, there is a sort of a vacuum in power there, and I think that Lebanon has a lot to lose if that country somehow directly or indirectly becomes involved with Israel. And I think our prime minister, the minister of defense, and the chief of staff made it very, very clear right now, the last few hours, that 
uh, if this um, fraud expands in some way, that those who are responsible for that will pay a heavy price. Israel is very capable militarily. We know that. We've seen that in the past. But we've also seen Israel stand alone when uh, when war has broken out, when conflict has broken out. And, uh, and this time, and you touched on it, it would be uh, of value if this country and, uh, and our allies and Israel's allies were to stand together. Do we need to hear from governments in the NATO alliance and specifically the Friends of Israel standing up and very clearly making themselves heard and perhaps also behind the scenes applying pressure? I'm sure you need that. Is there a sense that that's going to happen, Ambassador-designate? I think this is very, very important, what you're saying. Uh, this is exactly what we're expecting our friends and allies in the world to do. And uh, we have a very positive sense. You just um, um, aired the uh, speech, part of the speech of uh, President Biden, who said very clearly that the United States stands shoulder to shoulder with Israel. Um, I think that uh, Canadian leadership, Prime Minister, Minister of Foreign Affairs, also made very clear how they see the situation and how they see Canada's role, but there is also the resolve vis-a-vis these rogue players, such as Hezbollah and Iran, of course. I think that's where very important where the international community also steps in and makes it clear that there is a red line over there. Ambassador-designate, Hamas claims the attacks, and the attack is in response to continued blockade of Gaza, the continued growth of settlements, violence at the Al-Aqsa Mosque or Temple Mount, and the Hamas leader is promising an escalation of what he describes as an Al-Aqsa storm. What do you say to that? There is no link whatsoever to anything that has to do with the Al-Aqsa Mosque. There is no link to any kind of changing uh, deterioration of the situation of the Palestinians in Gaza. It's all to the contrary. But we know that Hamas would use any pretext to um, attack this, to, to, to execute this attack, we can tell very easily that this has been in the works for a while. And so this has nothing to do with what Israel has done. It has only one to, to do with only one thing, and that is with the first paragraph of the charter of this terrorist organization, and that is to eliminate the state of Israel. It's as simple as that. There has been, and I understand, I've just seen reports and news stories, but there has been criticism within Israel that Hamas caught the Israeli army and security forces off guard, and particularly with heavy fighting having taken place over the last three weeks or longer. Any validity to that? Uh, I think that we should leave these kind of questions and answers for the time when this is over. We should keep our eyes focused on what is at stake right now. This is a huge number of lives of people that have been abducted, that have been taken hostage, uh, and that are wounded and that are fighting for their lives. This is where we should aim all our energy towards and make sure that these people are safe and that they are treated and so on. This is really not the time to ask a question uh, as difficult as they should be. Uh, we'll get to that when the time comes. Just remind everybody that, again, looking at globalnews.ca, the Hamas militant group says it is holding dozens of Israeli soldiers captive in the Gaza Strip. Remind us, please, Ambassador-designate, what it is that 
you would like to see from Canada what the uh, what you're expecting from this country going forward in this war? Um, well, in this kind of troubling times, I think it's really the people-to-people solidarity that we need. Uh, we need to feel the strong um, solidarity between the people and the support of the people of Canada. Um, Israel takes care of its own security, but I think it's very, very important to express in any possible way the support and uh, the, the, the solidarity of the, of the Canadian people population towards Israelis at this time. I think this is the most important thing. There's uh, another terribly disturbing story that's come out of Iran. And I'm going to ask my guest what she thinks about what's happening in Israel, because I know she has strong opinions on that. Let me just read you a few lines from uh, Global News. A teenage girl has been hospitalized and is reportedly in a coma after she was captured on surveillance camera inside a Tehran metro station without a hijab. Moments after 16-year-old Armita Garavand is seen on video entering a subway car, she was carried out by passengers unconscious. Kurdish human rights organization Hengaw claims Garavan suffered a, quote, severe physical assault on October the 1st at the hands of Iranian morality police for not wearing a headscarf. And that sounds very much like what happened to a 22-year-old uh, Iranian woman who... Um, lost her life, Maza Amini, and that led to massive protests in Iran, street protests, over 500 people were killed. So there's that story, and there's also the story of uh, an activist, an Iranian activist, Nargis Mohammadi, who won the Nobel Peace Prize while she's incarcerated in the notorious and deadly Evan prison in Tehran, Masi Alinajad is my guest, Iranian journalist and activist. She's the author of The Wind in My Hair, My Fight for Freedom in Modern Iran. You can find her on at Alina Jad Masi on X, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, Masi, thank you very much for the time. I want to talk to you about the two women but and, and what's going on inside Iran again. But could you give us your sense of the attack by Hamas on, on, on Israel? Of course, indeed. I have to say that we, the people of Iran, millions of us, strongly condemn the terrorist attacks against Israel. And uh, we express, you know, our solidarity with the victims and their family members, their beloved ones. Um, you know, we, the Iranians, know very well who is behind this assault, these, these attacks. Um, uh, the Islamic Republic recently in Tehran, they had a, in Khamenei, the Supreme Leader, had a meeting with the leadership of uh, Hamas, you know, Ismail uh, Haniyeh. And um, right after this meeting, uh, before that, I have to say that a month ago, high ranking members of Revolutionary Guards uh, had a meeting with, uh, you know, uh, the Hamas and Hezbollah's um, high ranking members in Lebanon, as I said. So, but right after that, like only four days ago, when you go to Khamenei's Twitter account, um, you see that he actually issued a statement saying that Israel is dying. You know, the words have consequences. Today, 
um, the whole world is witnessing, watching that Hamas attacked Israel, and we believe that the Islamic Republic is doing what they have exactly promised, you know? So I believe that terrorism is Iran's regime's only solution, and we must address that this attack, this horrible attack, is funded by the Islamic Republic. I keep hearing all the analysts on TV, you know, I, I listen, I pay attention to their opinions, but I have to say that if we don't address the terrorists, the alliance of terrorists and warmongers in the region, uh, we're not going to go anywhere. Terrorists are united, and the time has come for all the democratic countries to get united and end this. Yeah, and Iran has long promised to destroy Israel, to wipe it off the face of the earth. So your sense is that there was um, uh, uh, that meeting, there was um, uh, at least there, was, there were plans or there was um, financial support or other support from Iran for, for Hamas and the attack on Israel, yeah? Yeah, look, let's be very, very clear. Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, announced that publicly in a video that if the Islamic Republic don't give us money, we don't have any money. So that well, that's a video mm-hmm. clearly saying that they are being sponsored, funded by the Islamic Republic. And not only that, like the Islamic Republic sent drones to Putin. Yes, they did. So President Zelensky mentioned that many times and asked the leaders of, uh, you know, G7 to take action. So the Islamic Republic, as I always say, they have only one solution for, for any problem, terrorism, killings, and they are funding Hamas and Hezbollah. So for that, I believe that when, like the, the European, Canadian, the UK government, they hesitate to put the IRGC in the terrorist list, then here we are. It's not just Iranian people getting killed, tortured to death, facing rape and humiliation by IRGC. IRGC and the Islamic Republic, they are the biggest threats, in my opinion. And if it was not IRGC, believe me, President Zelensky would have won this uh, war much earlier. So the IRG is the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. And uh, they are, well, many many countries, uh, certainly individuals and groups, have called for the IRGC to be did, uh, determined and defined as a terrorist organization. Not every country has agreed to do that. I, it was an issue in this country. I don't, don't remember actually whether we did or not. I don't think we did. But, no, uh, you didn't. I remember, uh, Roy, it was four years ago when I was in Canadian Parliament and mm-hmm. I asked Justin Frodo um, to designate the Revolutionary Guards as a terrorist organization. I was not successful to have a meeting with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, but what happened? Four years later, the same Revolutionary Guards killed more than 50 innocent Canadian passengers. Yes. By shooting down like the 752. Yeah, 752. Exactly. So that's, that's what I'm trying to say, that right now the UK government hesitates. The EU, the EU, I mean, I just heard that Joseph Borrell and many other Europeans and like the president of uh, France, like all over the world, condemning this uh, terrorism, this terrorist attack on Israeli civilians. But they have to talk about the roots as well, you know, by saying that we stand with the people of Iran, we stand with the people of Israel, we're not going to go anywhere. 
I want them especially to sit down right now and make a concrete decision, taking concrete actions against uh, the alliance of terrorism in the region, the Islamic Republic, Hamas, Hezbollah, and Putin and other allies and, and other dictators that they're backing each other for their terrorism purposes. My guest is Mazi Alina Jaj. She's an Iranian journalist and activist. She's the author of The Wind in My Hair, My Fight for Freedom in Modern Iran on X, or used to be Twitter, at Alina Jad Masi. So let's talk about the issue of the wind in your hair. Once again, we have a situation where this time it's a 16-year-old girl, and apparently some of her hair was sticking out. I'm not sure whether she was wearing a hijab or not, but they, the story that I saw said some hair was visible and she entered a subway car with two other women, and almost immediately she was carried out of the subway car by passengers, and she was unconscious. And there's a photograph which you've posted on uh, on your ex account, Twitter, at Alina Jadmasi, which shows her in hospital, clearly in a situation of great distress. Talk to us about that. Yeah. I mean, honestly, can you yourself believe what you just just said? No, no, no. It's shocking. It's just shocking. She's only uh, 16 years old, beautiful teenager with an amazing, you know, haircut. So she refused to wear hijab all the way from her home uh, to school. So in the subway, there are many, like, like bunch of officers, hijab police, walking around and warning students, girls, unveiled women to cover themselves, to cover their hair. So she refused, according to her classmates and uh, two witnesses that they gave interview to Guardian. So she refused. And what happened, the hijab police pushed her away. That's how she is now in a coma fighting for her life. And I mean, my heart is broken because now the world is busy with what's going on in Israel, rightfully. And my heart is there as well because she's another young victim of the terrorist regime of Iran. And right on the anniversary of Mahsa Amini, another girl who got killed in the hand of morality police, which her brutal murder actually sparked a revolution in Iran. And now another girl. So right after that, the Islamic Republic denied uh, the brutality of morality police by, by forcing her parents to go on TV and do false confession, by arresting two of her classmates and making them to do false confession as well, by arresting a female journalist who was just simply doing her job, trying to report about her situation in the hospital. Masi, the 16-year-old... Girl, teenager, uh, who you have photographs of, and you posted them on again on your on your uh, ex account at Alina Jad Masi, clearly in distress in a coma in hospital. Um, she, um, her mother has been looking at this story here. Her mother has been uh, reported to have been arrested, and now the, her mother's whereabouts are unknown. And because her mother probably, again, looking at the story, her mother didn't seem to support the state's yeah. view and the state's mm-hmm. position on what happened to her daughter. Wasn't emphatic enough in support of the, of the state of Iran, and now her mother's disappeared. 
You're absolutely right. The Iranian television brought someone on TV, called her relative. And the, the young woman was trying to tell the uh, whole world that she was not being beaten up by Morality Police and referring to Armita's mom saying that she checked all the footages and immediately the mother reacted to the lies of this woman, an Iranian reporter, said that, no, we haven't checked all the footages. Immediately she got arrested. The mother got arrested. Look, honestly, I don't have any words to explain the brutality of the of, of Iranian regime. That first, they kill you. Then they go after your family members and they put them in jail and they prevent them from, you know, mourning. Right now that I'm talking to you, the family members of more than 70 innocent protesters who got killed last year in Women Life Freedom Revolution, they got arrested or they were cemented to go and explain and, you know, sign an agreement that they're not going to speak up about their beloved one who got killed. This is the true face of Islamic Republic. So, uh, Masi, talk to us, please, about Nargis Mohammadi, who's in Evan Prison, which is a deadly place to be. I've had guests on this program who are incarcerated there who feel lucky they survived. Tell us about uh, Nargis Mohammadi. Nargis Mohammadi has a really loud voice against oppressive regime. You know, uh, uh, first when I met her, it was 20 years ago, when I was a parliamentary journalist. Before even seeing her face, I heard her loud voice while she was challenging one of the members of the parliament about the situation of political prisoners. Since that, she herself became a political prisoner. She faced a solitary confinement. She's been away from uh, her dreams for years. You know, I myself have been away from my family, from my mother, for 13 years, I know the pain. But Nargis is really, like, wounded but unbowed, unbreakable. And that scares the Iranian regime. So for, for me and millions of women, this novelty strikes you, uh, like, being awarded to Nargis Mohammadi is a symbol, like, symbolizing the power, the struggle, the pain, and the bravery of Nargis Mohammadi and millions of Iranian women who chanted woman life freedom. She's been in prison 13 times. She's been convicted five times. In total, she's been sentenced to 31 years in prison. And she was last detained, well, she's still in there, because in 2021. And what did she do? She attended a memorial for a fellow Iranian killed in those nationwide protests that were sparked at the time by gasoline price increases. There was more than that, but that was the official reason. What do you? Th how do you think the Iranian regime will react to the fact that Nargis Mohammadi oh, has won the Nobel Peace Prize? They are already angry, my friend. They are very, very angry. They actually uh, condemned that. They said that this is a political, like trying to downplay uh, the price. You know, but I have to say that when the Islamic Republic is angry, Iranian people are happy. But I have to say this price uh, is, I mean, the price means to encourage Iranian women. But I want to be honest with you. Iranian women have the courage enough to challenge this barbaric regime. I believe that this Nobel Peace Prize must 
encourage the democratic countries, especially the female politicians who used to go to Iran and obey compulsory bailing, bowing to the Islamic Republic. The price must encourage them to be as brave as Nargis Mohammadi, as brave as Iranian women, and help us to to end this gender apartheid regime, you know, because now I guess was a reformist like myself. I was supporting reformists as well. But for years, we, we, we just realized, like millions of other Iranians, that this regime is like ISIS, is like Taliban. You cannot reform this regime. And now I guess publicly announced that uh, she is against the Islamic Republic and she wants to have a secular democracy, like All millions right. of Iranians. So for that, I believe this award should send a signal to the rest of the world that if you want okay. to be democracy, you have to help us to end this regime. I'd rather be right now in Iowa. I'd rather be in New Hampshire, South Carolina, or Ohio, or a lot of other places, but I'm stuck here because I have a corrupt attorney general that communicates with the DOJ in Washington to keep me nice and busy because I'm leading Biden in the polls by a lot. That's all this is. This is election interference. They made up a fake case. They're fraudulent people. And the judge already knows what he's going to do. He's a Democrat judge. In all fairness to him, he has no choice. He has no choice. He's run by the Democrats. I know this city better than anybody knows this city. There's nobody knows it like I do. He's a Democrat judge out of the clubhouses. He's controlled, and it's a shame. What's going on here is a shame. Our whole system is corrupt. This is corrupt. Atlanta is corrupt. And what's coming out of D.C. is corrupt. The 45th president of the United States standing outside the courtroom in uh, New York City two days ago, I think it was, holding court and expressing his views of what was going on and is going on inside that Manhattan courtroom. Associated Press writes Donald Trump's civil fraud trial will roll ahead next week after the former president lost a bid Friday, so yesterday, to halt the proceedings while he fights a pretrial ruling that could strip him of Trump Tower and other marquee properties. An appeals court judge rebuffed Trump's push to pause the New York trial, but agreed to leave him in control of his holdings for now. The decision after an emergency hearing yesterday afternoon, came five days into the closely watched trial. And it is closely watched, and there are more trials to come for the former president. My guest is Michael Buckner. Mr. Buckner is the former assistant district attorney in the Rackets branch of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. He's now a principal at Buckner and Associates, B.C. Attorneys at Law in New York. Michael, thank you very much for joining us. It doesn't sound like Mr. Trump's lost any of his fight. Well, uh, no, he hasn't. It's a pleasure to be with you. He certainly hasn't uh, at least uh, superficially lost any of his fight. But, uh, you know, Trump has uh, always believed uh, the Roy Cohn, who was one of his mentors, who was a a rather uh, infamous lawyer here in New York. And uh, a lawyer, a uh, member of the McCarthy team uh, way back in the 50s. And Roy Cohn always taught Donald Trump, never stop fighting, never stop attacking, attack, attack, attack. And that's the way you win cases. And that's what Donald Trump uh, 
that's the method he uses um, to defend himself, never stop attacking. So tell us, please, about this, uh, about the civil trial. The case revolves around Trump and alleged fraud. Uh, and and at the end of the at the end of the whole process, if it turns against Trump, if the decision is against Trump, he loses control of his New York empire, does he? Well, yeah, I mean, so 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 basically, what happened here is uh, the attorney general um, in New York has accused uh, Mr. Trump of lying to lenders and to insurance um, and to insurers by fraudulently overvaluing the assets that he controls in New York by literally billions of dollars. And according to the lawsuit she filed, the goal of the fraud was for him to be able to obtain you know, favorable loans and favorable uh, insurance policies um, in those cases. So uh, uh, if uh, Donald Trump loses the entire suit, he's already lost part of the suit. Um, the court essentially will give the death penalty to Donald Trump's uh, ability to business to do business in the state of New York. They have already moved to decertify his ability to do any business. And I just don't mean him. This would mean his children as well. Uh, Ivanka Trump, his daughter, is the only one who has not been named in the suit. And that's just because she originally was named. But the statute of limitations, um, that is the time frame necessary to bring the suit, had expired at against, as against her. So she's the only one not named. But if this suit is successful, continuously successful, not only he, but his entire family will be stripped of the ability to do business in New York, and his assets will be taken from him. He will be required to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to disgorge, that is to give back uh, monies that they claim he was not entitled to have obtained. A civil case, so there's no, there's no prison at the end of this. Correct. Um, there's, there's no civil, there's no criminal exposure. This is a civil lawsuit. Um, however, for Donald Trump, um, taking away his money is mm -hmm. the same thing as putting him in jail, frankly, uh, in some ways. Look, it's very unlikely that Trump, even if he's convicted in the criminal cases, is going to see a jail sentence. I don't think he ever will. Um, but for Donald Trump, the big problem is in a civil, in, in the criminal cases, particularly the federal criminal cases, as compared to the ones brought by the state court in New York and the state court in Georgia, he can always be pardoned for the, for the federal criminal cases. He can't be for the state, but he can for the federal. You can't get pardoned for civil litigation. So if there's a finding against him civilly that he owes all this money and that the properties are taken, and if that is upheld on appeal, uh, you know, he is going to be stripped of virtually all of his assets. How difficult a case is this to prosecute for the long term, for the duration of the, of the, of the trial, Michael? I, I, I can see how it would be, I don't want to say simple, but it would be understandable for a person like me with no law degree to understand what's going on and follow along. But as it becomes more challenging or more intricate, how difficult a case is it to prosecute? And, and then on the converse, how difficult is it to defend successfully? That's a very good question. Now, if this trial was being done in front of a jury, um, your question may have a more ramification, but it's not being tried in front of a jury. It's being tried in front of a judge. So the point I'm making is, is that a jury might have a more difficult time understanding some of the intricate arguments regarding either overvaluation 
or the fraud involved with insurance um, and what the insurance and what his auditors may have said and whether the appropriate accounting methods were used. This is pretty intricate stuff at times. But the prosecution in the case, the attorney general, even though it's a civil case, um, she doesn't have to worry about a judge understanding this stuff. So certainly for, for certainly in the courtroom aspect of it, the court um, um, and, and Garan, uh, Judge Engaran has always stated, has already stated that he believes that Donald Trump engaged in fraud um, and he found him responsible in phase one of the case. Um, the issue that now is just some different types of um, civil conduct that they're looking at. But it's going to take three months for this to go forward. Um, they're going to be calling hundreds of witnesses. Um, the judge has already expressed his discontent at um, the length of some of the cross-examinations that have been occurring and has also shown some uh, upset at the prosecution with the level of some of the uh, how long they're taking to put their case on. But, you know, from the public perspective, uh, you know, it, it's going to be the headlines are going to be keeping it simple, stupid, which is Trump lied about what he's worth. Trump inflated his assets in order so he could get benefits. You know, like somebody going for a mortgage and lying about how much they're worth in order to get the mortgage. Um, it's really kind of the same type of argument. So I think the public understands it on some levels. Um, uh, however, uh, look, those, are who, those who are inclined to be Trump supporters, they don't really care. They think that this is all a setup. They think this is all, you know, the New York elite going after poor Donald Trump. Um, and for people not inclined to support Trump, um, they're looking at it and saying, you know, the guy's a huckster and a fraudster. And what's interesting, uh, Roy, is before Donald Trump even became a presidential candidate, he was always known or believed to be by many in the New York City environment as being someone who lied about his assets, inflated his assets, and was all of these things that people are saying about Trump now. Uh, many people who knew him before he'd be a presidential, even a presidential candidate, always believed about him. His family was under investigation long before um, he ever became a presidential candidate for similar types of real estate fraud. And those cases were just never brought by the district attorney's office, but he was investigated for them. So uh, at the end of the day, this is going to be a long trial. Uh, I think the result is already concluded. Uh, he's going to lose control of his properties. The court is not going to certify him to be able to operate in New York any longer. And uh, he's going to uh, have to I uh, hope he becomes president. And what about this uh, appeals court judge who, to quote Associated Press, rebuffed Trump's push to pause the New York trial but agreed to leave him in control of his holdings for now? How much of a, a factor is that? Or is that just a byline? You know, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of a byline, um, Roy, because I, I can tell you the, the, the fact that the appellate court uh, didn't interfere. That's not because it's Donald Trump. Appellate judges almost universally do not interfere with trial schedules like that. So the court, the way the court ruled for Donald Trump is the way the court has ruled in lots of cases I've been involved in and in many, many cases I know of others who have been involved in. It wasn't unusual. In fact, the court gave Donald Trump a little help here by saying, you know what, but we're not going to strip him right now of his ability to run certain of these properties until we hear more, until there's more evidence. So the, the, the court could have done worse for Donald Trump, um, and it didn't. So this was actually not a bad ruling for him in many ways. He wants to delay the trial because Donald Trump's method of litigation defense, and it's not just Donald Trump. Any good defense lawyer does the same thing. 
is to delay, 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 and hope that things get more complicated, go away, problems arise, etc. That is what he's doing in every single one of his criminal cases, seeking to delay things as long as he can. So he was a game show host, his own, what's called The Apprentice? I think that's You're fired. Called. Yeah. So could he, uh, is there an opportunity here for Donald Trump to uh, invoke another game show, let's make a deal, and... Uh... <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I guess if the judge was Monty Hall, he might, he might have a better chance. Um, but uh, yeah, he's not making any deals here. Um, Donald Trump is a fighter. He'd rather go down losing and blame a corrupt system and then appeal and appeal and appeal um, than, um, uh, than, than come to any admission ever that he did anything wrong. Um, I, I don't see him ever settling this case. And I don't see the attorney general settling the case, certainly in the civil arena. She has the upper hand. The court's going to rule for her, and Trump's going to lose. Uh, and then he'll appeal it, and then he can hope that the appellate court um, sides with him. In the criminal case, he's never pleading guilty to anything uh, because his intention is to become president and then to, be, then to pardon himself. Or if he doesn't become president, to have the, and, and if a Republican does become president, for the Republican to pardon him, certainly of the federal offenses. On the state offenses, He's hoping that he can convince the jury that he didn't do anything wrong. And look, he, he may get acquitted. You know, uh, he's, got, uh, he's got a lot of personality. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people, uh, they find it kind of offensive, the idea of trying to convict somebody who is running for president. And he has support. It may be very difficult to get a unanimous jury to convict him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may end up, as we call here in the United States, a hung jury, you know, where the where the jury just can't decide, and then they have to decide if they're going to retry him. Um, but look, some of the cases are very ugly on the criminal end of it, especially the ones in which documents were declassified, documents were taken. There was a recent story in the paper, you probably saw it here, where Trump was talking to an Australian businessman who he had befriended um, and talking to him about pretty uh, important confidential information regarding uh, U.S. nuclear submarines. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Trump just uh, he just can't keep his mouth shut. Um, and he's a defense lawyer's biggest nightmare. Um, I've done cases with celebrity defendants. I represented Bernard Carrick, who was the police commissioner here in New York and right. one of Giuliani's cohorts. Right. He got in trouble. And uh, it's difficult at times to keep uh, uh, clients who are, are used to presenting themselves in the public to just keep their mouth shut. No, Trump's running for president, so it makes it even harder. I'm bigger than you and bigger than everything else. So get out of my exactly way, right? right? Exactly. I'm already seeing, Michael, I'm already seeing emails. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, it's all political. He's just being attacked by his enemies. He's being attacked by the Democrats. He's being attacked by Biden. He's being attacked by the Department of Justice because they're terrified that he'll be elected pre- president again and he'll expose all of their wrongdoings. So he has a lot of support. There's a lot of public support in the United States. He I'm, he I'm not telling anything 50, you don't know. 50, no, yeah, fifty. Look, he got he got almost fifty percent of the vote, and yep. there are still people who support him. Um, but look, what you have to keep in perspective here is that virtually every witness against Trump in the classified documents case, for example, and in both federal cases, are all Republicans, and they're all Republicans who used to work for him, who came forward. All, everyone who testified in the January sixth hearings against him, who are now going to be witnesses in the federal trial. 
they were virtually without exception. There were a few. They were all people who were worked closely with him and said that, like um, Hutchinson and all these other people, the, the, the young woman who came forward, saying that the guy is, you know, uh, an autocrat by nature, that he's dangerous, that, you know, he knew that he didn't win the election, but he had people lie for him. Um, so it's not a, you know, if this is a Democrat conspiracy, it's a conspiracy comprised of Republicans. That's a good line. Michael, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. My pleasure to be here for you. Yeah, Michael Buckner, former assistant district attorney in the Rackets Bureau of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. We're talking about the Donald Trump trial in New York. So, Michael, if we if we look at what's going on here, and you say it's going to go on for about another three months, people will start to get a glazed look over their eyes. But when the when the verdict is handed down, and you told us what you think it's going to be, what your professional assessment is, how does this impact then, and you touched on these cases a little while ago, on the state cases and the federal cases that Trump is going to be facing going forward? Well, the civil case is not going to have any impact um, on the on the on the value or the credibility or the evidence related issues of the of the criminal matters. They're 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 wholly unrelated. Um, the the civil matters deal with matters that occurred um, before he. Uh, uh, there's some overlap for the time he was president, but uh, it's really just how he ran his business, and they're really not related at all to whether or not he was involved in uh, the uh, uh, the January 6th issues, or whether or not uh, he was involved in election fraud or the or the document issue. So it's not it won't have any impact um, on on those cases. If, if it does have anything, it would be I would imagine it would be an emotional response, perhaps for the jury. Michael, I uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much. Thanks. I hope you don't mind if we call you again. Uh, it was my pleasure, and, uh, and I'm always always glad to speak to uh, to our neighbors up north. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.